So we'll start the evening. Let me pray for you guys. We're in, uh, you can turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to read there um, and start our evening. We are discussing, is the Bible really reliable? So in our uh, theology seminar this summer, um, we have been going through some tough topics. And this is one of the ones that we'll be dealing with. Um, Pastor Clint was supposed to be here um, but he had to travel and was out of town and was not able to get back in time, so you have me tonight. So we'll do this. Is, is the Bible really reliable? Let me pray, and then we'll read the scriptures in Second Peter. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for this opportunity we have to gather around your word, to study your word, to recognize the reliability of the scriptures, uh, to recognize how much your word affects our lives and how we can trust it and we can stand on it with absolute certainty that this is your message of hope to us. And we pray that tonight we would honor you in all that we do. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's uh, begin in verse 19. I'll read to the end of the chapter uh, and just talk about it just for a second. But I want to kick off our evening with this thought tonight. The scripture says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, that, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is important for us to understand that the Bible's making it very clear that it, it understands that there's Scripture. It's talking about the very Scripture, uh, even Scripture that you're reading uh, daily, the Scripture of the Old Testament, the Scripture of the New Testament. It acknowledges that the Scripture is actual, that it's, a, that there's, it's present in that day and age, and that they'll be present here in this day and age. And it wasn't by the will of man. It wasn't the thoughts of man, it was led by, men were led by God himself to write the word of God. If over 40 different authors, over 1,500 year period of time, this is how we got the Bible. So let's go through this uh, outline real quick. Now we won't spend uh, time, a whole lot of time just going through a portion of scripture. We're going to go through a lot of facts, a lot of inf information tonight. Um, we are going to go look at a few verses tonight that will be in um, maybe what you would see as a, what we call a variant. And so we'll read some of that tonight and show you a couple things. But that's all that we're going to do tonight and show you that the, the Bible that we have today is something you can trust. That was the word originally intended for us to have in this moment. It was what was written then and what we have today. So the importance of its reliability, the importance of the reliability of the Bible is that, look, man, it's the center of all that we do. When you come to Hickory Grove, we want to start our services with singing about the Bible. We want to read the Bible. We want to teach the Bible. We want to preach the Bible. We want to sing about the Bible. We want to pray the Bible. We want to live out the Bible. Everything that we do here is centered around the Scriptures. So if this is not a reliable book, man, then everything that we do here is, is no good, and it's of no value. So the importance of this book being reliable 
is everything that we do here. Everything that we worship as Christians. In the Christian faith, the scripture is most vital. It's most vital for us to understand and to believe. In it. And it gives us, where we, it's where we learn how to operate in life. It's all matters of faith, all matters of worship, of ethics, uh, of everything that we do is centered on the scripture. And we learn it from the scripture. It's sufficient for every problem that we face in this life. The Word of God is sufficient to help us to face all of those issues. Even things that aren't written explicitly in the Scriptures, we can draw inference from the Scripture, principles um, and precepts that we can live out in this life. It's very important for us to understand the reliability of the Scripture is important. And it's, it's what we know to be truth. It's this is truth, and we can trust that truth. There's things that are ever-changing. I mean, I never thought this when I was growing up, that gender would be something that's fluid or debated. But now that's even changing. We know science has changed for, for years, centuries changes. Everything changes. But the Word of God does not change. It has not changed for thousands of years. It hasn't changed. Staying the same. Now, what I want to talk about is the scope of the argument we're going to talk about tonight. What, what are we exactly going to talk about this evening? Now, in the large uh, debate about the Bible, the Old Testament isn't debated as much. Uh, it's pretty much been solidified. It's pretty much been uh, well, well before Jesus walked the face of the, earth, face of the earth. It was well agreed upon about what the Old Testament scriptures were. Um, they all read the same scriptures. Uh, the same scrolls. It wasn't bound like you have an Old Testament bound. It was not definitely not on your phone. Uh, it's not like it, it's it's completely in scrolls and different uh, the way that it's presented here. But but it was all agreed upon. You you never see Jesus or the Pharisees debating. They would they would get in debates about Scripture and talk about Scripture. And Jesus quoted almost every single Old Testament book. And you you see that they're debating. But there's never a debate where one of the Pharisees or other people say, well, that's not in my Bible, or I don't know if that's, uh, that, that book right there is, is not a part of the canon or, or valid. You never see that. They all agree that what they're talking about is the Scripture. So the Old Testament is not debated as much. It's pretty much every historian concedes what we have in the Old Testament is what was written in uh, ancient Hebrew. Okay? They, they pretty much agree with that for the most part. There may be some debates on it, but not a lot. What gets debated the most is the New Testament. The New Testament is what is widely debated among uh, historians and atheists and apologists who debate and defend the Scriptures. They spend most of their time on the New Testament. And part of that is because in the Old Testament transmission of the Scriptures, there would be very, they were very strict. You know, only certain people, people could write copies. Only certain... They could only write certain words with certain pens, and it was very a uh, strict way of, of transmitting the Scripture and transcribing the Scripture from, and copying it from one manuscript to the next. It was a very particular way they had to handle it. Um, there were a lot of rules. They were very strict. The Jewish people obviously have very strict ways in which they operate, and so it was a perfect group of people to have all these strict rules. And so the, the, New, the Old Testament was transmitted differently than than the New Testament. In the New Testament, there wasn't much care, as much care, 
you know, it was basically they would grab any scrap of paper or papyri they could get and, and write on it and copy it, and they did it as much as they possibly could um, so that they could have it. It wasn't as much uh, strictness when it came to uh, copying the New Testament now. And so that's why you have a whole lot of fragments. We have tons and tons and tons of fragments um, from the New Testament era of copies of the, of the scriptures. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's the scope of the argument we'll be dealing with tonight. It's more so we'll focus more so on the New Testament tonight. So let's start with how we got the Bible. How did we get the Bible? It wasn't like a parachute was hooked to a book and it was dropped from God and it came and landed in the midst of us and we all were like, there it is. There is the good book. And let's just... That's the one. If, it, if God had done it that way, what do you think would have happened? Just, just curiosity. What do you think if God just dropped a book down from the heavens and it landed, what do you think would have happened to it? Man, they would worship that, that book. They probably would never open it, would just worship it. It's the book. We don't, nobody touch it. Nobody read it. Nobody do anything with it. Let's just worship that book. And we'd probably come up with all kinds of crazy rituals in which how to worship that book. So it didn't come to us that way. And there's, you know, really, there's only a few groups of people that could have written the Scripture. So it could have been good men. Good men could have written the Bible, right? Good men. But if good men wrote the Bible and lied over hundreds and hundreds of times saying, thus saith the Lord, and this is the Word of God itself, and saying this as they do it, and then condemning themselves to hell, like... I don't think they, they wouldn't be good men. They would be bad men. But why would bad men write all these moral laws and to condemn, them own, condemn their own lives? So it wouldn't make sense for bad men to do it. And so really, it would only make sense if God was the author of the Scripture. So the history of the Bible is that God used the prophets, prophets in the Old Testament, and the apostles in the New Testament, or the associates of those men, to write the Bible. He led them by the Holy Spirit. He guided them. Now, it wasn't a robotic, a robotic transmission. It wasn't like God is saying, okay, write this word. No, back up. Erase that. Your handwriting's terrible. Uh, none of that was happening. There was a, use their own personalities, use their own vocabulary, use their own uh, way of writing and styles of writing. But he led them by the Holy Spirit. It's what we call the plenary verbal trans, uh, translation of the Bible. And that's how we have the Bible. Now, what that gives us is how do we get these books? Like, how do they come in so many different books? Um, who chose the books? How did they get put into the canon that we have now? Um, how did that all take place, and how did it happen? The Old Testament books were pretty much decided. You know, Jesus basically used the Greek Septuagint when he was alive. So they were all pretty much decided and already in, the, uh, in use, and nobody really debated those, especially in that time and day and age. And then we have the New Testament. Now, the New Testament, how did that take place? After Jesus, after Jesus raised, raised from the dead and, and left this earth, you have the apostles. The men that were basically with Jesus, they wrote, most of those guys wrote the Bible. And then you have disciples that were disciples of the apostles, so closely related to the apostles, wrote the scriptures. And then the early church would use their writings. Now, 
you got to remember, in the first century, in the Jewish culture, they weren't really looking for, they weren't going down to the local lifeway looking for a book bound together. Can I get the whole thing collected? And can I buy it now, today, and get this thing so I can like go home and, and read it myself? They, they weren't doing that. They, they had many copies because they would handwrite the copies. But that's not how they, it wasn't a, like codified in a, in a book and bound. It was letters, and they were dispersed among the early church, and they were copied. Hey, you get this copy, you get this copy. That's how they operated. And they were using these books. They were using, using them from the beginnings. As soon as they were being written, they were being dispersed among the whole church, the whole first century church. And all of the books of the Bible were written by the end of the first century. Something around 95 A.D., the last book was written. So after the first century, all of the books of the Bible that we have today were already written. So when, now, it would be really neat if they had a list. Like, just like, okay, here are the books of the Bible that you should use. In the first century, they weren't really thinking about making a list. They were just using the scriptures, using the letters that the apostles had written and the associates and the ones that they were uh, the church was widely using, and they all were using the same ones. They weren't using different ones. Now, if you read some uh, critics of the New Testament, maybe a Bart Ehrman or somebody like, like that, they would say, oh, it was like the complete chaos and the Christian, Christian diversity. There was like basically what they would say is basically Christianity. It wasn't just Christianity. It wasn't like one Christianity. It was Christianities and one group. Uh, beat out all the other groups. It wasn't necessarily the right group. It was just like the one that kind of just won. And since they had the power, they could write history any way they wanted to. Well, that's, that's not even remotely true. But uh, YouTube and TikTok and all these other places would have you believe those kind of things. They would have you believe that, but that's not the case at all. In fact, there was great conformity, great unity in which books were being used by all the churches in the first century what was being used, and all the early church fathers. In fact, do you know, and this is, I'm going to jump the gun a little bit, but if you just took the writings and the quotations from the early church fathers, just the quotations from the early church fathers, you could reproduce the Bible without any help from anything else. There's over a million words of, of quotations from the early church fathers' writings. And you could reproduce the scripture just from that. Just from that, it's amazing how much uh, uh, evidence we have for the scriptures. But like, let me give you a couple little things here. So in the early first or second century, so you have the first century going on, that's when books were written, and then you have people copying them. In the early second century or mid-second century, you have lists that men are not compiling but since they're quoting them and using the scriptures themselves to quote, you have men that are quoting scripture from different books or scrolls of the Bible. And so you have a, almost a complete list in early in the second century. Now, some people would have you to believe that we don't have an idea of what the whole canon was until the fourth century. But that's not, that's not true at all. In fact, that's, that's a, a little bit of a misnomer. It's not, it's not really accurate. Now, you do have... In Nicaea, there are several councils, but Council of Nicaea was in AD 30, 327. 
They recognized all the New Testament books, but questioned James chapter James and Second Peter, and Second and Third John, and also Jude. That was in AD three twenty seven. The Council of Hippo. It was in three ninety seven. It confirmed all twenty seven uh, books of the New Testament. Council of Carthage was three ninety seven. Affirmed all twenty seven books of the New Testament. And then you have the Second Council of Carthage, again confirming and affirming the 27 books of the New Testament. And that was all in the 4th century, which is where they think, oh, that's the only time. But if you, if you do some research and look around, you'll find that there's a man named Polycarp. Does anybody know that name? Who is that associated with? Anybody? You can throw it out there. The Apostle John. He was a disciple, a direct apostle, uh, direct a disciple of the Apostle John. And he has writings in early 2nd century, and he refers to books of the Bible. He also had a disciple his own, of his own. And that was Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, however you'd like to say it. Um, we can ask him later. But he lists 22 of the 27 New Testament books, and he does that in the 2nd century. Not very far, less than 100 years from when Jesus actually lived. And he's a direct disciple of John himself. So, if, you know, if, if he had conversations with John, and it's not like he's listing them, hey, these are the books that you're using. This is what he's listing out that he's quoting and he's writing about these books that he's interacting with on a, a regular basis. Some of the books that he doesn't quote are smaller books, like Jude and, and First and Second John. Those are some of the books that he doesn't quote. I mean, look, let me just read you the list of of Irenaeus, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1st Peter, 1st and 2nd John, Revelation. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a pretty decent list? This is the 2nd century before it's even past 100 years from Jesus leaving the earth. There's still people on the earth that knew who this, who Jesus was. So it's a pretty remarkable list. And in fact, if you go back into the, the second century, if you stay in the second century, almost every single book is mentioned by some early author, early church father, or even early church heretic, um, except for maybe two or three books. It's pretty remarkable. So they were using this. It wasn't like we had to, you know, they, people were attacking the books at that time. And they had to, to put together a, a, a book until around somewhere in the mid-2nd century where you have Marcion, who was a, basically a heretic. He wanted to start his own church. And so he wanted to make his own list of books. And so because this heretic, and what, what's funny about church history, if you remember our church history uh, study, you remember doctrines were kind of developed in, in retaliation to these false teachings. So you'd have a false teaching. You'd say, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible teaches, and they'd make a clear declaration of what the Bible is teaching. You see that all throughout the history. This is why councils were created. This is why you have the Council of Nicaea, because of the Trinity. So there were, there were false teachings, and so they, they wanted to clarify what the teachings were. So that's why you have the Council of Nicaea and other councils in history. Because you have somebody bringing up, hey, this is what I think is the, is the case. So I think these are the books, um, and, I, and it's really, it's a bad list. 
Uh, but he mentions a lot of the New Testament books, but he also mentions some other crazy books. And he's trying to start a church where basically he can do what he wants to do. But he's the really kind of the first one that's trying to catalog the books. And so in, like, in contradiction to that, in like a, a fight, um, this began that the church say, no, 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 you're a heretic, you're completely crazy, these aren't the books. And so you started having people that would write uh, back to him. So look, this isn't, this isn't right. This is what we're using in the scriptures. And so this is when you begin to see lists that were, that were more formative. And you have a Clement of Rome. You have uh, all these men who actually started to write lists and use what we now know as the New Testament. We have 26 of those books. Second Peter was probably the last one accepted into the canon. So most of these books were already in use and already being claimed to be Scripture and already using, the, the church was already using them. It wasn't like there was a debate within the church. Some guy outside the church, a heretic, was coming in trying to, trying to make his own list. And the church revolted and responded to that by making it clear on what they were studying. And it took them time to get that all completely developed. But it was in uh, the 4th century when it was completely confirmed. But by the 3rd century, the complete lists were out there, um, all 27 books, well before the 4th century ever came about. So this is what is, is the history of the Bible we have. And we can trust this. Now, the next was what we have is manuscript evidence. Now, what is a manuscript? Does anybody know what a manuscript would consist of? When I say manuscript, what I mean is a handwritten copy of either original or a copy of an original. It's a handwritten uh, manuscript that we actually have in possession, uh, that we, that's in existence. Now, we don't have the originals. We don't have any of the original writings of the New Testament. That might scare you, but it shouldn't. We don't have any originals of any book of antiquity. We don't have Homer's Iliad. We don't have any of those in their original writings. We have copies of copies of copies. And those are all called manuscripts. And every book, of, every history book, every book of antiquity has to go through the same um, measures to see how valid they are and how accurate they are. Well, the Bible has a complete, like it's an embarrassment of riches compared to the other books that are out there. And so let me just give you a couple. So maybe some names that I think you might know. So Plato, Plato was around 427 B.C., 347 B.C. Uh, the first, like, manuscript that we have, handwritten manuscript that we have, a copy of the original writings, was 900 A.D., that's a difference of, that's a 1,200-year span of no copies till the first copy that we have of the original writings. So we have the original writing, which we don't have anymore, and then the very first copy that shows up is 1,200 years later. And you know how many copies of that we have? Seven. There's seven. Is that a lot? No, it's not very much. Let me... Well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll say it in a second. Uh, Aristotle. Let me give you another one. 384 to 322 B.C. Again, 900 A.D. is the first one we have. 1,400 years later, he has 49 copies. That's, that's impressive. Uh, 
Sophocles. I used to call him Sophocles, so I know how to spell it when I was in high school. Um, but anyway, 496, 406 B.C. Uh, the first copy we have, handwritten copy of the original, which we, nobody has, the original is not in existence, uh, is 1000 A.D., 193 copies. That's 1,400 years difference. It's 193 copies. Caesar, 144 B.C., 900 A.D. is the first handwritten manuscript that we have, 10 copies. Homer, Iliad, 900 B.C., the first handwritten copy we have is 400 B.C. Difference of 500 years, we have 643 manuscripts. Now, that's a lot. Now, let me tell you what the New Testament is. You ready? New Testament was written between 40 to 95 A.D. Okay, so after Jesus died in 33 to about 95. The first handwritten manuscript that we have is basically P52. It's been dated as early as 125 A.D. It's also been dated a little bit later. So let's just say somewhere around 150 A.D. That's a difference of about 30 to 50 years. From when Jesus walked the earth. So that's close to when he was here on earth, which, which helps us because if you're going to lie about somebody, the further it is away from when they lived, the easier it is to lie about them, right? If people didn't know the subject matter in which you were writing about, the further away from that subject matter you get, the easier it is to lie and make up history. But if it's right then with people who lived during that time and you're writing it, it's hard to lie about that. It's hard to make it up. So 30 to 50 years. Do you know how many manuscripts we have? Handwritten manuscripts? Just in the Greek. Just in Greek. Almost 6,000. Almost 6,000. That's 5,800 or something like that. But that is a lot of handwritten manuscripts. If we include all the languages that we have in handwritten manuscripts, it's over 20,000. Now, what that does, what that does is it causes there to be some variance. Does you know, do you know what a variant may be? A variant would be a difference between one manuscript to the next manuscript. Like this copy, if we all copied, if we all sat here for 15 minutes and wrote a copy of 1 John, and I made you handwrite it, I would guarantee we'd have some differences in spellings. Some of you would misspell some words. Uh, some of you would miss words. Uh, so it, would be, it wouldn't be perfect, is what I'm saying. But if we took everybody in the room, I don't know how many people are in this room, 60 or 70, I don't know how many is in this room. But if we took everybody that's in this room and took all 60 or 70 of the trans, uh, transcriptions that you've, you've made, I bet we could get to the perfect version of the original manuscript. Because we could take the differences and compare them, and we'd get the right one. It'd be like this. If Aunt Sally made the best potato salad in the entire world, she had secret ingredients, and she gave a copy of her recipe to 10 of her descendants, and all 10 of them copied it down from her. 
and then they left, and they took it to their homes. Dog would eat one. Maybe you'd find some scraps of it. Uh, it would get faded in the sun on somebody's car because, you know, you left it in the back of your car, and the sun, like, faded the paper and the ink. Uh, so you're missing. So you got to call your other people and say, hey, I don't have the third ingredient on this list. And, well, I don't have it either because I lost it completely. Uh, and, but if you take all ten of those people and you get the lists together, I guarantee you can come up with the actual original ingredients. But all, the, all those differences would count as a variant. So it, it's, it's actually better. It's better to have more manuscripts than less. It's better to have more variants than less because you can get to the original. It's easier to get the original. Now, let me talk about what a variant might be. 75% of all the variants. Now, we have, do you want to guess how many variants we might have? Differences in one manuscript to the next with the five or 6,000 manuscripts that we have in Greek alone? Probably 500,000 variants. That's a lot. Does that scare you? Does that make you nervous? Do we have the Bible? Do we have what we need? Yes, you have the Bible. Don't let that scare you. But this is what people like to do. Oh, there's like five, Bart Ehrman wrote it in his book. Oh, you have 400,000. It's actually uh, Daniel Wallace is probably the foremost expert. He and uh, Michael Kruger. Michael Kruger lives here in Charlotte, actually. Uh, but Daniel Wallace is probably one of the foremost experts on New Testament and well, Bible transmission, but New Testament especially. Um, he actually responded to Bart Ehrman and said, actually, Bart, it's probably more like 500,000 instead of four. And he was proud to say it because it's, it's actually fine because 75% of those, of those variants are spelling mistakes. And if you, does anybody read Greek? I don't read Greek, but I look at it. Now, maybe, you know, we, have, we used to have a guy on staff that could read it. He'd bring his Greek New Testament and read it. Uh, I thought it was arrogant, but it's fine. <laughs> we have really cool tools now, and then it tells me exactly what the Greek word means. I don't need to be able to read it. Um, also, really smart people translated into English, so I'm not, I'm not really afraid of that. But in Greek, it's like one letter, one mark can change the word completely. So it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's difficult. You can, it's easily... Uh, mistranscribed. It's, it's easily, uh, mis there's mistakes that are made easily. So spelling mistakes happen 75% of those 500,000, or 75% of them are just spelling mistakes. Like uh, where you might write, hey, give me an apple. And you have the N, and you kind of have an extra space on the, on the N, and it goes to give me uh, an apple instead of an apple. That would happen a lot in the Greek because they would just move a letter over one. And so that, that happens a lot. So those would be the mistakes we're talking about. Then there's uh, synonym mistakes, meaning that, and they're, they're not really our variants, synonym variants. So maybe, maybe uh, this uh, transcriber would use a different word that means the very same thing as that word, but that's also counted as a variant, that's 15%. Okay? Anybody good at math? How many percent is that? 90%. Okay. 
then what we do have is some meaningful, meaningful late variants. What is a meaningful late variant? A meaningful late variant would be a variant that actually changes the meaning of the scripture, but it's kind of a late trans, uh, you know, from a late manuscript, a late dated manuscript, and it really doesn't change any theology or anything of significance. Uh, l- let me read this to you. So in First uh, Thessalonians two seven, uh, let me get to it. All my pages stick together, so. Should have marked these. Man, the Bible drew, I'd lose. All right, somebody read First Thessalonians two seven for me. All right, good job. Nobody can hear you though. I'm sorry. First. It says, but we were gentle among you. That word gentle, that word gentle is also translated in, in, a, in a manuscript as infant. Because the difference between gentle and infant in Greek is like one little small mark, one letter. And so it got translated wrong. Uh, there was a mistake made. And so that's counted as a variant. That's counted as a meaningful variant because it changes, it changes the wording. And it changes it significant enough to be from gentle to infant, which are completely different things, right? So one would be gentle, one would be infant. And there's also a really late one, uh, one manuscript that actually takes that word and uh, makes another small mistake, one word, one letter mistake, and changes the word from gentle to horses. Horses. Yeah, horses. So, but we were horses among you. So that changes it completely, but does that really change Christianity? No, and it's obviously a mistake. There's obviously, that's meaningful, but it's late, and it's really not something that anybody cares anything about because it's easily dismissed. Uh, there's also, um, let's look at another one real quick in John. Maybe I can turn there faster. Um, John 1, 15 says this. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There was a mistake made, and instead of he, it was air. This is air, like the air, the wind. So that, that's, it's meaningful changing the word, but it's late and not really that big of a deal. Now, 1%, less than actually, less than 1%, because that was meaningful and late, or about 9%, 9 plus percent of the, the other variants. Now, less than 1% of meaningful variants that are early enough to matter and change the meaning of the passage is less than 1%. So 99 point some odd percent of the, of the manuscripts agree completely about everything uh, in meaningful and early transmissions. So, there is one that I'll show you that's kind of uh, an example 
of the difference, okay, of the variant. One that's kind of famous and people talk about is Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One, there's a variant, and you can actually look at your Bible. There's probably, you can underline we and look at the bottom of your footnotes. There's probably a footnote that says something. That word, some manuscripts say, let us. So instead of reading, we have peace with God, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace, peace with God. Now, it changes the meaning. It changes the word. But it's not, it's not significant enough to change your whole theology. But that's one example of the difference, the variant. Um, but the difference in that word, that they sound almost exactly the same when you pronounce them. I'm not going to pronounce them to you, but you can look it up on Google tonight if you'd like. Um, but the, the pronunciation of those words are almost identical. It's a very subtle difference in the Greek, and it's only one letter difference. And it's easy to make that mistake. So, it, but it also doesn't change the theology that we have. But that would also, that's part of the less than 1% of the variants. So you see what we're dealing with? It, when, you, when you hear 400 or 500,000 variants, when you hear there's differences, you freak out a little bit, but then you realize what we're actually talking about, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And plus, since we have so many different manuscripts, we know where all the errors are. Look at your Bible. You can see. How many of you have a footnote in your Bible from that very word that I just read, Romans 5.1? Raise it real high so everybody can see it. Look, so your Bible is actually telling you. We know where all the different variants are. It's not like we're going to wake up tomorrow, oh, there's a surprise. Hold on, John 3.16 is not actually in there. That's, that's not what's going on. That's not what's going to happen. In fact, every time we ha find an older manuscript, it gives more confirmation to us. Uh, it's when we found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. We were able to go back, and this is why we have, some people get really freaked out about the King James. Okay? There, there's King, you, some of you probably grew up King James only. I grew up memorizing the King James. There's still certain verses that I can't, I can't divorce from the King James language. Like Psalm 23, I always read it in the King James. I can't not. All right? So, uh, so I have some affinity for the King. King James is a great translation. It's not a bad translation. But it isn't the only translation, and it certainly isn't like you can only be saved with the King James as some people used to teach us. But it, there were not very many manuscripts that we use to translate uh, into the King James language. When they found Dead Sea Scrolls, they found manuscripts that were thousands of years, or that was a thousand years older than the manuscripts they used to, to uh, translate the King James. And that's what we have. Your ESV was translated with those documents. So you probably have the ESV in your hands now. That was translated with those thousand-year-older documents. And many more of them. I think there were seven in the King James, and there's many, many more uh, documents that we were able to use, older documents, when we translated the newer modern versions now. Now, some modern versions are trash. We won't get into all that. Okay, but does that make sense? Am I boring you to death? I know this is not like the most exciting subject in the entire world. Some of you are looking at your watches. Okay, so anyway, so that's manuscript evidence. And textual criticism. Textual criticism was all the variants. Uh, if I didn't uh, tell that to you and you, you wrote it in the wrong spot, I apologize. 
Now, with all that said, how do we know it's true? How do we know that the Bible is true? Well, one reason we know is the authors. They were the apostles, the associates of the apostles who wrote uh, the Bible, who wrote the New Testament. You have like Peter and Paul and Luke and Mark. And Mark got most of his, we know this, he got most of his book uh, from Peter himself. You have Matthew and John who wrote the Bible. These men were apostles or close associates of the apostles in Jesus Christ himself. Um, the early church fathers attribute the writings to the apostles. So you know you have these, everybody every year, especially around Easter, you have all these new Gnostic gospels that come up. You have people talking about the gospel of Thomas. You have people talking about all these different gospels that were, um, they were written, all, almost every single one of those was written well after the second century. And it was basically a pseudo-author. It was somebody trying to be, trying to produce something that they could attribute to the Bible. But it wasn't, it's been confirmed as not really reliable. Almost every single one of those. Um, and none of them were in all of the lists that I talked about in early 2nd century with Irenaeus and Clement of Rome and Ignatius and you have uh, Polycarp and all these men of the early church. I'm talking about early, early, early church. Every time they made a list or they quoted, it was always Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was always those four Gospels. Always, uniformly, always those Gospels. They never mentioned these other Gospels. And, if it, and also, none of the Gospels say, like when Paul writes, he says, I, Paul, the Apostle. None of the Gospels have a like, clear declaration of I, Matthew, or here I am, Luke, or here I am, this person. They don't really have those declarations in the scripture, in the, in the Gospels. But what they do have is they have the same title from the very beginning all the way through. So some people would say, well, since they don't like say, this is how Bart Ehrman would attack it, since they don't say, um, you know, I, Matthew wrote this book, it can't, it's probably not Matthew, it's somebody else. No. Everybody that ever, every single church father, every early author, they always attributed the same title to Matthew. Some people say that the titles were added later. They weren't added later. They've always been Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels have the most uniformity of all uh, ancient documents. They have more wealth of evidence than any document ever written. And I know people get weirded out about the originals. We don't even have the original of the Gettysburg Address. You realize that, right? And that was Abraham Lincoln. So we don't have very many originals of any ancient document, but the copies are what's really helpful to us. Okay, so authors, um, early church fathers conformed it. The titles didn't change. There were reliable historical evidence from the early church fathers um, attributing all these uh, books to, the, to uh, those particular authors and also all the quotes from it. All right. So now content. I'm going to try to get real fast. So how do we know it's true? Authors, number one. Content, number two. What is the content of the scriptures? Let me try to give you something um, pretty easy to, to remember. Okay? So when somebody's like, if somebody ever talks to you about work, or you can kind of talk to them about, about these things. So take your hand 
and I'm going to go through six different points uh, about the content of the scriptures and why you can trust it, how we know it's true. So number one is the pinky. This talks about prophecies, prophecies fulfilled. Let's just look at a few of them. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before Matthew wrote this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's hundreds of years before this prophecy came true. Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem of Hathareth, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Then Matthew 2.1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Bethlehem, that, that's, that's a nothing town. Nothing came from Bethlehem. It's a, it's a complete, why would they even talk about Bethlehem? Nobody mattered. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was prophesied that he'd be born there. Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And John 12, 14 says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He fulfilled that prophecy and even quoted it as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ coming on the donkey. Psalm 22. Most of you know. You, you, I don't even have to read the New Testament version of this. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is messianic psalm. You can read the whole thing and it's basically the crucifixion of Christ and verse 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers evil encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In John 19, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, and one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, for the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The probability of those things being fulfilled hundreds of years apart is almost, almost impossible. It is impossible, unless... This book is true, unless this book is true. So the prophecies fulfilled are evidence of the Scripture being true, the content. Your ring finger, number two. Supernatural unity. You know you have your ring finger, you're married, there's unity there. There's supernatural unity. It's the self-attesting Scripture. How Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 that the Scriptures were communicated to how Jesus communicated the scriptures to us. Uh, 
over hundreds of times in the Old Testament, hundreds of times the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. The Bible speaks of itself as God's own word. It's unified in its one message from, the, from creation to the fall to uh, redemption and to restoration. It's completely one story all the way through. Look at the supernatural unity from beginning to end. And then your big finger. I won't, I won't show you that by itself, uh, but the long one. It's the big finger, and it answers, the Bible answers the big questions of life. You know, the Koran and all the other different books, they don't answer all the big questions of life. Like, how did I get here? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? The Bible answers every one of those questions, and it does so in great detail. And it does so truthfully and logically, and it does so, it builds it up very, very nicely. So it answers all the big questions of life, every one of them. It gives purpose to you. Then you have the pointy finger, or the pointer. That one. Mine's crooked, by the way. <clears throat> the historical accuracy. The historical accuracy of the scripture. It points to the historical accuracy, archaeology. I'll just read you some things that have been verified by archaeological discoveries after the scriptures have been written. The city of Jericho, discovered. The city of Nineveh, Ur, Babylon, Megiddo, the tomb of Joseph, Sanballat and Tobiah, the city of Tyre. These things have been discovered archaeologically. All of them. Here's another list. I mean, I could go on and on. There's hundreds of them, but I'm just going to give you a few. The city of Bethany, Bethlehem, Bethsaida, uh, Cana. There's a, an inscription found um, in AD 725 uh, of Cana near Nazareth mentioning the miracle of the wine. Emmaus, Jericho, Jerusalem, Nazareth, uh, Sikar. These are, these are all archaeological discoveries that confirm what the Bible's talking about is really there. And it's historically accurate. And guess what? It's testable. You can test it. The Bible doesn't like, it's not vague. It uses names. It uses dates. It uses times. It uses places. It's not like you can't test what the scripture is actually saying. You can go back and look at it. People have been doing it for decades, for centuries. They've been trying to, to prove the Bible wrong. And they just can't do it. The thumb. You know, when, when Caesar would walk out after the Romans... Uh, would have a good time watching the people fight in the arena. He would give a thumbs up or thumbs down, right? This means death. This means life. When you think about the Bible, think about this changes lives. This gives life. This is a life-giving book. It changes lives with obedience to the Word. Just If you didn't believe anything else about the Bible, just look at the evidence of changed lives, the people who dig, dig themselves in the Bible. And then you can make a fist. That's the sixth point. The Bible is a fighter. The Bible is a fighter. It's a fighter. Punch. Fighter. It's a fighter. Not like, like Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai never die. The Bible fights. It's never, it's never been defeated. It is never and it's ever been defeated. It will always fight. People try to attack the scripture. They, the devil tried to attack the word of God in the garden. 
and it's still going on today. The Bible is always at attack. It's always been attacked. But it will stand the test of time. It's a fighter. It will never give up. It will never be, it will never prevail against. Okay. So how does this affect our lives? I'm going to go real fast. I've got a few minutes left, and I'll get you out of here. I'm sorry. This affects our lives. How do we know God? We know God because of the scriptures, because of the Bible. This is how we know God. This is how we know his character. This is how we know how he loves. This is how we know he gives us grace. This is how we know about forgiveness. This is how we know about salvation. The Bible, we know knowing God, salvation, it gives us purpose. It gives us purpose in this life. Sometimes you might get discouraged. You might get frustrated, and you don't know what to do. You don't know what job to take. You don't know what, what path to take in life. You don't know what... You might be at a crossroads and you don't know what to do. The Bible gives us purpose that's bigger than your job, that's bigger than your friendships, that's bigger than everything. The purpose is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, to share the gospel, to make disciples. That's the purpose. And then there's encouragement. The Bible is very encouraging. You, you and I, we all weary in well-doing, right? There's your King James. Don't weary in well-doing. The Bible provides encouragement. It provides strength when we need it. When you need it most, when tragedy strikes, when difficulty comes, when things aren't looking good, what do we do? We turn to the Scriptures. Often people who have never set foot in a church, who don't, don't ever turn to the Bible, when their life's falling apart, what do they do? They seek out Scripture. They seek out a Bible verse. They seek out somebody they know that knows the Bible because this book is different than any other book that's ever been written. It is a book that provides supernaturally to us. Let me pray. Let me dismiss. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you change lives with your word. Lord, help us. Help us to to trust, to rest on your word, to rest on this truth, to know for sure, for certain, that this is the inerrant book of the, the word of God, that we can rest our hearts, we can rest our lives, we can teach our children these truths and trust it forever and never doubt that what's being taught from here is tainted in any way. This is the word of God. Let us trust it. Let us live a holy life because of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.